In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with me, with the de- I'm sorry, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the wheat of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, and welcome to Disciples Church. How are we? Good. All right. Everyone's a little sleepy today. We'll wake up a little bit. We're going to turn to the Old Testament to make that happen. Uh, Turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. The book of Ruth. Uh, My name is Jonathan Mosher. It's my privilege to open up the Word uh, with you this morning. Uh, I'm thankful to hear um, 
a passage like this being read. It puts into context uh, all of what we're going to look at this morning, and so excited uh, to dive into this. So just to give you a little bit of a, uh, a kind of a, a little bit of an understanding of where we're coming from, if you've been around with us for the past several months, um, you've heard and you know that our general philosophy of preaching is that we want to work uh, expositionally through books of the Bible, and so most often what we'll do, um, you know, be- beginning uh, back with last April and continuing on for the future is we'll work our way through the Bible, uh, New Testament book, Old Testament book. We'll take little breaks um, here and there to address other things in the life of the church. We just came out of a series on the foundation of the church, talking about what it is to be the church. Um, We'll we'll dive into the book of Ruth for the next um, six weeks, and then we're going to jump into our Advent series leading up to Christmas after that. Um, But this is our general approach, and the reason that we do that, it's very intentional, uh, is because we're instructed specifically to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And in order to do that, we have to understand as believers, first of all, where our faith comes from. How is what we believe now uh, in 2019, how is that connected to this 5,000-year history uh, that, we're, that, that we're connected to? Where is our history? Where are our roots from? How do all of these things work together? Secondly, what we see in the Old Testament is a direct connection to the coming of Christ. I mean, you can't help if you're reading if you're reading the Old Testament through the lens of the whole Bible, we know how this story ends, right? We've read through the Bible, we know what the Bible says, and when you begin to look back at the Old Testament, you can't help but see Jesus on every page. You see, as, as the old theologians referred to it, the scarlet thread of Jesus' blood that runs through Scripture, and you have a very clear picture of that in this particular book. I mean, we see themes in this book of redemption and salvation and provision and protection of God's sovereignty and his love, of his pursuit of the lost. I mean, these are all things we see in the book of Ruth. And so uh, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you're not there already. Ruth is right between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. And what, you, what you'll notice, if you were paying attention during the reading, what you'll notice uh, is that Ruth is different. In fact, most of the Old Testament is very different than what we find in the New Testament. Uh, Many of the letters in the New Testament, they're written directly to churches. They're given for very specific instruction. Oftentimes, the authors of those letters will state right at the outset, here is the reason that I'm writing to you. There's this issue in your church, or there's this thing you need to understand, or there's an element of your faith that I want to explain on a deeper level. But we don't have any kind of explanation like that in the book of Ruth. And so depending on whom you read and what commentaries you look at and who you listen to, there are all kinds of opinions as to what the purpose of the book of Ruth is. And so some people are going to say that the book of Ruth is really written as a critique of the Jewish government. That, that, that the author recognized particular problems with the Jewish government, maybe in specific in the way that they dealt with non-Jewish peoples. And so maybe the book of Ruth was written to address some of those problems within Judaism. Other people are going to say that the book of Ruth is written as an admonition towards personal faithfulness. This is a call to the individual to like Ruth, to like Naomi, to be a faithful follower of God. Others point out that, uh, that this is one of two books in the Old Testament that is specifically devoted to the life of a woman. And so maybe the whole purpose of this book is to demonstrate the influence of women in Scripture. And finally, there are those that would say that What we're to see in the book of Ruth is that God's provision for his people is consistent and that he always lovingly pursues the lost. And the truth is there are probably all of those themes represented on one level or another as we read the book of of Ruth. But 
Like many Old Testament uh, narratives, the names and the places and the times and all of the things that we find in this book are just rich with meaning. There's all kinds of deep references and things that we can easily read past coming from a Western uh, mindset. And so what we want to do as we dive into this series is take the time to look at those things to see ultimately what they teach us about who God is, the way that he interacts with people, and what it means for us. And what we begin with in verse 1 is that we notice right off the bat that this is a very hard time to be living. Look what the author says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the days when the judges ruled, so there's our history, there's our era, there was a famine in the land. So in the, in the days when the judges ruled, so this is written about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. So now just think about that uh, just on the face of it. I mean, we think about uh, a history a thousand years ago, a thousand years ago from today, and that is, for all intents and purposes, though it's not formally uh, ancient, for all intents and purposes, is, it is ancient history. I mean, it is so distant and life was so different and the way people thought and acted and believed and functioned within society was so different. Technological advances that had not yet taken place. I mean, a thousand years is a long time. And this is a full thousand years before the coming of Christ. This is the time in the history of Israel between the leadership of Joshua after they had come out of the wilderness and had established themselves in Canaan and the installation of Saul. And so there's this odd period that we find ourselves in Jewish history, and all you have to do is look just one chapter back in your Bibles at Judges, chapter 21 and verse 25, and it says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, this is a chaotic time in the history of Israel. This is a time of tribal rule and chieftains that, that, that governed over particular tribes and villages within the nation of Israel. The national government, such as it was, was very ill-formed. And generally speaking, what they would do is if there was a time of national crisis, if they were going to go to war, if they, or if they feared attack from some neighboring country, then a national government would be appointed for a very small period of time to get them through the crisis, and then things would begin to fall apart again. I mean, this is a time of widespread moral failure. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. They're worshiping other gods. They're forgetting the one true God of Israel. They're forgetting the promises and the claims that God had made about his covenant people. They've walked away from God altogether or they're stumbling in their faith. I would argue that in a lot of ways, Israel finds itself in the same place that we now find ourselves. Where there are still remnants of a cultural faith that guide people's lives to some extent or another, a common understanding, at least on some basic level, in our case, maybe some cultural context of Christianity, but a very, a very small number of people who would actually hold to the tenets of the Christian faith. And the same thing is true in this period in the lives of the people of Israel. They knew about the one God. And they would have called themselves Jews, faithful followers, members of this chosen nation of God, but their lives certainly didn't show it. And in the midst of all this chaos that's happening, life goes on for one normal family. You see this family busy raising their children, moving to another city to find a job, interacting with their mother-in-law, having concerns about the economy, 
I mean, in many senses, what you find in this story is just a normal family and the way that God providentially moves in the everyday circumstances of their life. And in this ordinary setting, we're introduced to a man named Elimelech. The name Elimelech literally means, my God is king. I mean, his name is preaching a sermon in and of itself. And this is very likely a man who grew up in a faithful Jewish home. I mean, his name would indicate that. Undoubtedly, he had seen his parents worship the one true God. Undoubtedly, he had uh, partaken in the sacrifices uh, that, that were required of his people. Undoubtedly, he had heard the stories of Abraham and Moses and Joshua, of God's incredible, miraculous provision for his people, of the way that he brought them out of the wilderness, out of, out of the way that he had established them in Canaan, the way that he had provided for Abraham, he had seen and heard about all of these different stories. But in his own lifetime, that had not been his experience. And ironically, his hometown, Bethlehem, meant the house of bread. And in this village called the house of bread, there was a terrible famine. And so perhaps Elimelech was disillusioned with his faith. Perhaps he's disillusioned with God's providence and care. Maybe he's even angry. But we know, what we know for certain is that he's scared. And we can see that by what he does with his family in this portion of his life. I mean, he has this broad concept of who God is, but he doesn't see God's provision in the day-to-day, and he begins to fear, and he begins to wonder. I came across this quote this week from a German theologian named Helmut Thielich, who wrote this, and I want you to hear these words because I think they're so, so helpful for us. He said, tell me how lofty God is for you, and I'll tell you how little he means to you. That could be a theological axiom. The lofty God has been lofted right out of my private life. If God has no significance for the tiny mosaic pieces of my little life, and for the things that concern me, then he doesn't concern me at all. And what Helmut is getting at in that description is is that there are all sorts of people who claim the mantle of Christianity who find themselves in the same position as Elimelech. They are products of a cultural and religious ethos. They have adapted a system of belief or a system of behavior that recognizes a creator God, that insists, in fact, upon the existence of a real and true and living God. But their, their, their view of God and their identity in God is so weak that they are unconcerned with God's view of the ins and outs of their lives. And my guess is, with as many people as in this room, there are certainly those who would find themselves in that category. You wouldn't doubt for a moment the existence of God. You wouldn't doubt maybe for a moment the existence of Jesus Christ. You wouldn't doubt that he's the savior of mankind and your theology is perfectly lined up if you were to write it out on paper. But when it comes to the ins and outs of your life, your view of God is so lofty, so disconnected from who you are as a person that you might as well have no view of God at all. And I think that's where Elimelech finds himself. There's this famine in Israel. 
which we know from other Old Testament accounts was, was God's sign of correction for his people. He was calling them to repentance. He was inviting them to himself. He was reminding them that he was the source of their provision. And what was intended to lead them to repentance in their life led Elimelech ultimately to run. And so you're seeing him make a decision that is certainly unfaithful to his very namesake. My God is king. But before we jump on Elimelech too much for his lack of faith, consider his circumstances. I mean, what kind of different decision would you and I make if we, we found ourselves in the same position? Certainly there is criticism to levy here on Elimelech's life, but before we judge him, remember that he has a family to provide for. He has a wife, Naomi. He had two sons. I mean, would we have made a decision so incredibly different from what he did? And furthermore, here's what we know about his circumstance. Not only is he living in a chaotic time where where government has no real control of what's happening and is not doing what it was intended to do. Not only is every person doing what is right in their own eyes and is there all kinds of moral failure around him. And not uh, not, not only is there this famine in the land, but the famine has struck his family so hard that his sons who are named Malon and Kilion, their names literally translated mean sickness and wasting. I mean, these people are desperate. But rather than trusting God, they decide to flee and go to Moab. Now, Moab is this land that's just across the Dead Sea from where the children of Israel uh, were inhabiting. And it was, it was inhabited by a group of people. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know the name Moabites. These were people who historically had all kinds of issues with the Jews. They had all kinds of disdain, all kinds of hatred. On top of that, the, Mo- the Moabites were, were known as a vile people. They were known as a violent people. Their lives were marked by those things. They worshipped gods uh, that had all kinds of uh, sin attached to their very worship. So now imagine for a moment that you're in the position of Naomi. And you've been pulled away from whatever family that you knew and taken with your two young boys away from your homeland and away from your friends. And now you are trying to faithfully raise two boys to love God in a culture that is known for its antipathy towards Israel and the one true God. And as as if all of that is not enough, what we find in verse 3, as a resident in a strange country, is that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. She now has her two sons, but this husband who led her into a foreign place is gone. And we're told in the verses that follow that her two sons married Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. Now here's why all of this is significant, and if you'll notice, we're only a few verses into this chapter, and there's so much happening already But here's the significance of all of this. God had very clearly warned the Israelite people that they were not to intermarry with other peoples. And in particular, what he was warning them against was intermarrying with people who did not worship the one true God. And what God had warned them about was, look, if you allow your sons and your daughters to marry people who do not worship me, they will be drawn away to other gods. Their hearts will not remain uh, with me. They will not love me. They will not worship me. They will not know me. And so the Israelites thought on multiple occasions that they knew better than God did, and they decided to ignore that instruction. 
And they experienced and found out the very same thing that many of you might have known, that any Christian who, is, who has a non-Christian spouse knows firsthand the challenges that come along with that. That it is intensely difficult to remain faithful to God when you are walking alongside someone who does not share your faith. And throughout Scripture, you see God in His goodness redeeming these situations. He redeems the poor decisions of people. But understand that you need to resist the temptation to view that as permission to ignore God's wisdom. See, grace doesn't make sin safe. And though God can forgive, and though he can redeem, and though he can restore, and though he can bring beauty out of brokenness, there is almost always, in fact, there is always heartache that comes from sin. And just when you think that this story can't get worse for poor Naomi, look at verse 4. They had lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And Naomi is crushed. She lost her husband, and now she's lost her sons. And for a woman in this culture, this might as well, might as well have been a death sentence. All of her provision would have come through her husband and through her sons. Now she's in a foreign land. She has no ability to provide for herself. By her own recollection, she's too old to remarry. And she has no idea what to do. But in verse 6, we find a ray of hope. Because in that verse, Naomi finds out that the Lord had blessed her homeland, that crops were growing, that the harvest of plenty uh, had been given to them, and so she decides, I have to head back home. It's my only chance for survival. And that picks us up in Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, which says this. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore remain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now notice in this passage what you find. Here are these two Moabite women, Gentile women, who are not followers of God, who by virtue of Naomi's kindness to them and love for them, find themselves in the position of truly loving their mother-in-law. They've grown to love her so much that they're saying, we want to go with you because we want to make sure that you're okay. Let us return with you. We want to make sure that, that you're going to end up safe. And Naomi, for, for her part, is trying to make sure that they don't experience the same fate that she experienced. 
as widowed women in a foreign land. And so she's telling them, no, go return to your people, return to your gods, just go back home, live happy lives, prosper, remarry. Because for her part, Naomi didn't even know where her next meal was coming from, let alone having enough food for these daughter-in-laws that she cared about so much. But look again at verse 14, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, listen to these, now listen to these words as, uh, as Naomi shares with Ruth, and Ruth responds. She says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two then went on until they came to Bethlehem. And what you see in this moving monologue is Ruth covenanting herself to Naomi and ultimately and more importantly covenanting herself to God. And I just want you to notice, I mean, do you see that Ruth does this despite the warnings that have just been given to her? She's just been told, if you come with me, there's no guarantee that you'll find happiness. There's no guarantee you'll find prosperity. There's no guarantee life is going to go well for you. There's no guarantee you're going to find a husband. There's no guarantee you're going to have another meal. Why in the world would you follow me? Naomi's saying. And knowing that difficulty most likely laid ahead, Ruth commits herself to Naomi and to God. And what you have in this moment is really an Old Testament picture of what Jesus told his disciples. When he said, for those that are going to follow me, they need to count the cost of following. See, the call to follow God is often pillowed in the verbiage of pleasure. Life is better in Christ. There's true joy in Christ. There's fulfillment in Christ. There's provision in Christ. And listen, all of those things are true. But what's also true, in fact, what's even promised in Scripture, is that for the believer, life will be hard. In fact, we're told explicitly that by virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ, there will be those that hate you. And Ruth knew the risks, and she followed God. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, or the women rather said, is this Naomi? Now keep in mind, 10 years at least have passed since the last time that they saw Naomi. And if she had any hopes of slipping back into the city unnoticed, that plan failed. Because as she entered the city, these women who had known her and walked with her, and many of whom had probably known her since her childhood, they saw her coming from a ways off, and they said, can that possibly even be Naomi? 
And it's only been 10 years, but she looks so much older. She'd experienced such a rough life. And she said to them, verse 20, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So they say, Naomi, is that really you? And Naomi replies, yes, it's me, but it's not me. And if you've ever talked to someone who's lost a child, you know, you know the way that she delivered that line. Yeah, it's me, but it's not really me. Because everything in my heart and everything in my life is different. In fact, she goes so far as to say, I don't even want you to call me by my given name anymore. Her given name, Naomi, meant pleasant. And she says, it seems ironic that you would even address me by that name because life has been anything but pleasant for me. She says, instead, call me Mara, which means bitter, because it's a much more accurate description of who I am now. And imagine, again, before we begin jumping on Naomi or judging her in any kind of way, if that's our tendency at all, imagine what life must have been like for her at this point. I mean, the last time she was in this place, it had been home for her. And so as she re-enters the city, she sees the home where she grew up. That's where mom and dad lived before they passed. And as she walked further into the city, she sees, she sees the place where she first met Elimelech. And she sees the places where they had conversations and long walks, and she sees the place where they were married. And then she comes to the street where her two boys as young children had played together. And everything in this city reminds Naomi of what she's lost. In fact, she goes so far as to say, I know that the Lord has brought me back empty. And this lines up with what she said earlier in verse 13 when she said, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, these words are striking for a lot of reasons. One, they're striking because, generally speaking, we live in a Christian culture that does not speak this way. We live in a culture that does not recognize that heartache and hardship and difficulty is not only a function of the world that we live in, but in God's sovereignty is permitted. And particularly as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, just as, as Naomi was a follower of the one true God, particularly for us, the idea of being honest about the fact that life right now is just miserable. I mean, it's, these are hard words, but they're honest words. And in some sense, they're refreshing. I mean, she is angry about her circumstances. She's heartbroken about her circumstances. And she doesn't act as if she's unfazed by what's happened to her. She doesn't start dropping the Christian tropes of the day. 
quoting Bible verses out of context to make it seem as if everything's all right and as if she's not having a difficult time at all. She's not pasting a smile on her face as she walks into church. And when people ask how she's doing, she's not giving some pat answer of, I'm keeping on, everything's fine. No, she says, I'm going to change my name because I'm so miserable. See, this is what I love about the faith that we hold and the God that we serve. That God does not expect us to go about unmoved by our circumstances. And he doesn't ask us to pretend as if everything is all right. Understand this, Christians are not Stoics. And as often as people have a tendency to paint Christianity that way, where it's this kind of intellectual force of will that I'm going to overcome my circumstances and I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to white knuckle it until I reach glory, understand that that's not the faith that we see in Scripture. Instead, what we see is Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And Paul giving us instruction in Romans chapter 12 when he says you need to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. But in all of her heartache, what's incredible about Naomi as a person is she will not abandon what she knows to be true about God. She doesn't find this thing that she doesn't like about God and therefore try to create a new God She doesn't try to reshape God into her image. She doesn't try to make God like the things that she likes and do the things that she wants him to do. She says, no, I know who God is. And even in this moment where she didn't see his goodness and where she didn't personally experience the peace that only God can bring, she says, I know these things about God. And it's the same sort of thing that you see Job crying out in Job 13, 15 when he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. That God is so big that he can hear the cries of his people when they say, why? But he is no less good when we don't see it than he is when we do. And understand that this is why theology matters. And by theology, I just mean the study of God, right? In the broadest sense of the word. This is why the things that we believe as Christians matter. And so there are are people who take up the Christian mantle who would say, look, your your beliefs about God don't really matter. It's just about how you behave. Well, understand that 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 thinking does absolutely nothing for someone in this circumstance. Nothing. Nothing. It offers them no hope and no peace and no confidence and no joy and no hope. But it's the reason why we need to know as believers what it is we believe. And so look at verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. See, the truth is, there's a parallelism between the very first verse of this chapter and the very last verse. In the first verse, what we see is a land in chaos struck by famine and a family preparing to leave to go to Moab. And what you find in verse 22 
is the remnants of that family coming back to Bethlehem, the house of bread that has been finally blessed again with food. And Naomi's comment that she returned empty was not quite true. Because the grace that she was missing in that moment is that God in his providence had provided her with Ruth. See, what's, what's difficult about this chapter is there isn't a happy ending right here to close on. But that's okay. Because we know the rest of the story. And so here's the questions that we need to consider. How have you wrestled with the difficulties of life? And I ask that question with no sense of condemnation and no sense of accusation, but just purely as a question. How have you wrestled with the difficulties of life? Have you doubted God and walked away from him? That's what Elimelech chose. If I don't feel like God is going to be good enough, I'll find my provision elsewhere. I'll find my happiness elsewhere. I'll find my new life elsewhere. Or maybe you've never doubted his sovereignty, but like, like Naomi, you find yourself sitting in a place of bitterness. See, the invitation of this opening chapter is to embrace the God who knows better than you're able to know. But the reason we spend so much time talking about the goodness of God and the character of God and the nature of God and the sovereignty of God and the providence of God is because there will come moments in our life where we question those things. And in those moments like Naomi, we need to be reminded to be able to preach to our own souls See, this book is really answering the question that so many have, which is, is God really good? Is he good when I can't see why he's allowing difficulty in my life? Is he good when he calls me to walk through things that I don't like or don't understand? What's on trial in this book is the very nature and character of God Almighty. And what we find, even in this opening, somewhat down-facing chapter, is that God's sovereign purposes will not be thwarted by unfaithful responses. And in Elimelech's case, God continued to provide for his family, and he ultimately brought them home. And in Naomi's case, there was such provision and care coming for her that she couldn't have even imagined it. That God was already working out redemption and salvation while Ruth walked faithfully into the unknown and Naomi was resigned to bitterness. And in his ordinary workaday moments of your life, God is at work. He is not wasting any painful moment or any happy occasion or any question of uncertainty. And by his grace, what comes of Ruth's simple step of faith in following God would change the course of human history. 
She had no idea that God was going to use her to provide for her mother-in-law. She had no clue that she'd be remarried and have a baby. She had no clue that she would become the great-grandmother of King David, a man after God's own heart used to save his people. And she had no idea that through her line would come Christ, the Messiah. What she knew is that just like Peter, when faced with overwhelming difficulty and painful circumstances, the question was going to be asked, do you want to go away as well? In fact, she heard that question almost explicitly from Naomi. Wouldn't you please go and return? And just like Peter to Jesus, she answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, the truth is, in whatever area of your life that you find yourself with whatever difficulties and pain you're walking through, and I realize that there's people walking through painful circumstances. I don't say any of that lightly. But through whatever it is you're walking through, do you understand that the greatest praise and the greatest worship and the greatest love and adoration and sacrifice you can make to God it's not anything you'll do within the confines of the church. It's not any donation you'll make to any organization. It's not any act of service that you'll offer to somebody else. The greatest way that you can worship and praise your God is to trust him. The difficulty is that's also the hardest thing to do. But we have hope that God truly does work together all things for good for his people, to those that are the called according to his purpose, his purpose and his will that cannot be undone. And so we come to him in confidence. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for, God, the way that it has torn me up this week. God, the way that it challenges our assumptions, the way that it challenges our thinking, the way that it attacks the idols of our heart and the places that we try to find joy and happiness and the ways that we try to take advantage of your grace and the ways that we try to find happiness in anything other than you. And so God, I thank you this morning for hard words. I thank you for the testimony of Ruth a woman who was willing to follow you with no promise that things would end well and with assurance that it would be difficult and that in the middle of that, she still determined that it was far more beneficial for her to follow you and walk with you and know you than to have certainty of what most people would consider a happy life. And I thank you as well, Lord, for the for the easy-to-miss example of Naomi, a woman who, like many of us, finds herself in a difficult and bitter spot in life, knowing that you're good, trusting that you're good, trusting that you're sovereign, but just unable to see it. And God, we thank you that her faith has made sight, that in your goodness and your providence, you work together all of these things, not only for the salvation that she so desperately wanted and needed, but for the salvation of all of your people 
and us today. So Lord, in our moments of doubt and difficulty, help us to trust, to believe what we know to be true about you, and to rely wholly on your word, on your work, on your spirit. So thank you for these words this morning, and it's in your name we pray.